Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, today is November 8th, 2018. Charles Marshall back with you. And I also have with me Bill Padalo, who, as always, will be able to break down a lot of intel and details on the important topic that we are discussing today. I am broadcasting live from Southern California. And as always, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. It is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. And also, as always, Neil and I thank you for those donations. Any amount you are able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog, at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. In today's episode, Bill and I will be discussing how judges, and this is not, this is not only a, uh, an, uh, an uncommon occurrence, I would, I would say this is a typical occurrence, and it exists in both judicial and non-judicial foreclosure cases, you will hear judges literally say the words, where's the harm? Meaning, okay, you're in my courtroom. You may be a defendant in a judicial foreclosure case in a state like Florida, New York, Massachusetts, Illinois. You may be in my courtroom because you're a plaintiff, and you're in a non-judicial foreclosure case in California, Arizona, Oregon, somewhere in the Ninth Circuit, other parts of the country as well where non-judicial foreclosure cases are typically seen. And whatever format, whatever forum, whatever type of case you're in, your judge is basically saying, look, you had a loan, you took out a loan, you owe money on a major item, the mortgage, which is the subject matter of this case, you haven't paid, supposedly. Of course, they don't say supposedly. They treat that as, I mean, I think it's, is it fair to say that a lot of judges treat causes of actions in these cases, again, whether this is from the judicial foreclosure side where you've got one of the major servicers or 
nominal trust foreclosing on you or whether you're in, you're in a non-judicial foreclosure state and you're suing to get out in front of what may already be uh, a situation where you're subject to a notice of default or notice of trustee sale. So either of those scenarios, what I'm saying is that you, you know, the quote-unquote borrower are fighting for your house, for your life in reality, to vindicate your rights, to show that the, the, the proper creditor, the proper party has not appeared in your case, and that they are a stranger. We use that terminology a lot from our side, and it's warranted when used that courts may or may not sign off on our version is something that happens in these cases. We all know that. Nevertheless, uh, what we're talking about today is how judges will often say, look, you owed the money, you haven't paid, where's the harm? And I do have Bill Padalo with me, as I always appreciate, and he's going to, to break down a number of the issues on, on this whole question starting with a little bit of a reprise on the case that's the subject in part of today's show, and that's the Wells Fargo Bank N.A. versus Riley case that we have discussed previously on this show. And then once Bill gives a little bit of an introduction on that, we're going to get into some specific topics I'm going to give you a preview right now for all the listeners. Um, one, of the, one of the ways that you see harm in these cases, and I'm going to give you some of the ways right now, uh, several of the ways you don't get a true accounting of the amount of, uh, of, the amount of money that's still owed. And there has to be allegations in the complaint, whether it's from the foreclosure judicial side or whether it's from your side, non-judicial foreclosure. There has to be an alleged debt. There has to be some amount owing. There has to be a theoretical accounting of what that amount is. It's the accounting part that is often missing, and that becomes its own issue. I can speak to that personally in terms of California non-judicial foreclosure law. Uh you know, in terms of having handling a lot of these cases, accounting is a big issue. And another issue that we have already discussed on Neil's blog and is otherwise a big part of the harm that is visited on quote-unquote borrowers in these cases, you don't have the ability to finally reconcile the debt. I mean, if you don't literally know who owns your loan, who should you be paying money to? How can you get a final recon reconciliation of what you owe? And, you know, a big component of this is credit reporting agencies because what will happen from the other side is however tenuous their connection to your debt, however random or remote or undeveloped the true accounting on your loan, they will often report as a default or at a minimum a deficiency payments on the mortgage loan. And that's a big deal for most people. 
because, look, there's a lot of uh, people, particularly at West and non-judicial foreclosure cases, where bankruptcy has become a part of their legal process at some point along the way. This also happens in judicial foreclosure cases a significant amount of the time. And the bottom line is what we're seeing with that is that you can't you 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 basically can't um, proceed with getting your loan set right in terms of the marketplace, which is yet another point that I'm going to be discussing. So that's another fundamental aspect of the topic under discussion today is if you're in this situation, again, this could be judicial or non-judicial foreclosure, you're not able to deal with the dynamics of being able to alienate and market your property because what do you what do you tell prospective rent, renters? What do you tell prospective buyers if you're selling your property? You've got this completely muddled, muddy chain of title. They're going to look it up, especially if you're if, if you're dealing with a buyer. Even if you're dealing with a renter, if they're fairly savvy, they'll be asking you questions. So these are some of the fundamental issues. So Bill, if you would come in now and you know talk about the Riley case a bit generally and then, you know, address the first of the talking points that we're addressing today. Sure, I'd be glad to. Thanks, Charles. Um, Much of what I'm going to discuss around this topic, I wrote an article and I did post it this morning on my website at bpinvestigativeagency.com. So some of the cases and um, some of the testimony and items that I'm going to reference here, you can certainly just click on the article and find uh, what I'm I'm speaking about. uh, if you want to look it up after the fact. But anyhow, um, yes, I had, I had posed this question to Neil uh, not too long ago. We were having this discussion because this, this is the, cl- the classic question by the judges, of course, is, again, where's the harm? And, you know, they, they've, you know, since the beginning of this crisis and, and, and working in this field, the judges, you come into the courtroom and, and they say, look, you know, I, I understand what you're saying about the chain of title, that the assignments are fraudulent, that the notes and endorsements aren't authentic, so on and so forth. And they just view it as more of a nuisance. They want to kind of cut to the chase, so to speak, and say, let's just shove all this aside how, and, where, you know, show me the harm. And this is a, this is a huge deflection uh, that the servicers have been using, that, you know, using that mindset of the court since, since the very beginning. Uh, to deflect that exact question being asked and posed upon them. If you were to say, you know, uh, take away the presumptions of any of these documents they're putting forth, particularly the assignments and the forged notes and everything else, and said, how are you, how you prove how you've been harmed, they haven't had to to, uh, dig beneath or, or reveal under the surface any evidence to support the underlying transactions. And so, what we now have um, is a number of admissions across the board of the servicers when you push them on these assignments and whatnot who are admitting, they're actually admitting that these documents are materially false and that they do not represent the transactions that they claim to represent on the, on the assignments. My uh, position uh, as everyone else would agree that's listening to this show, and, and is that these are deceptive, unfair practices, no matter how you want to look at it. Okay, so I'm going to give you some examples. 
the Riley case, which we pointed out before on the past show or whatever, has a witness from J.P. Morgan Chase uh, who comes in, uh, Darlene Marcotte, and she actually, in the order, she admits that the assignments of beneficial ownership of the mortgage in that case, and many other cases that she testified in uh, with these types of assignments, were materially false, that ownership was not transferred. Right? And so there, I mean, it's, it, it, you would think, okay, well, that's kind of a, is that a fluke? Is that, you know, it's like one of those ta-da moments, like, wow, we caught them admitting this? No. They're admitting to this in depositions and when forced uh, to answer the questions under oath, and I've been working on cases now and assembling this uh, list, and I put a couple in this article. I'll give you another example um, of a case in Wyoming where Nation Star, Mr. Cooper, I put some of his uh, wit- their witness testimony uh, in the article where we were challenging and looking at this assignment that said that MERS was transferring and assigning both the note and the deed of trust in the, in, in the case, the beneficial interest. And when pressed on that, uh, the witness emphatically says, listen, MERS doesn't handle the notes. We, it, the, the note was never assigned in this case. It was simply the deed of trust. And we never handled the notes. And then you would say, well, the attorney handling the case would ask the question, well, why does the document say that? Why are you putting in this document and, and, and the, the very words that you're transferring the note and, and, and trying to gain that presumption that that event actually occurred when it hasn't? And there's no response to that. It's simply, yeah, I know the document says that, but that's not what happened, okay? Well, you know, we don't need to prove that as a deceptive uh, practice because the Illinois AG, for example, came down on a document vendor of nationwide title clearing, and I mentioned this on a previous show, where they specifically identified that behavior as being an unfair and deceptive practice. And they went under a consent judgment to say that they cannot and will not execute assignments on behalf of MERS claiming to assign and transfer the note. Okay? But that hasn't stopped the behavior. So it's already deemed a a deceptive practice. Okay? Now, my third example is a deposition of another Chase witness um, in the Prudian case in, in, uh, down in Florida where <clears throat> they started asking questions about the assignment of the WAMU loan from the FDIC to Chase. And what's just absolutely, uh, it, it, well, it's not a surprise, but the direct question was said, was this mortgage assigned from the FDIC to Chase? And the answer is no. And then when you look at the language of that assignment, it clearly says that the FDIC is transferring it to Chase, and Chase is operating as an attorney in fact. And the questions continue about that particular assignment. And and now in that case, and I'm seeing it in more and more cases, the witnesses are either being coached or the new message is that these assignments being executed of uh, these WAMU loans to the FDIC, they simply transfer servicing rights. That's it. And when you say, well, where does it say that in the assignment? They can't explain that. They just simply say, no, this assignment does not transfer ownership of the mortgage. These assignments doesn't, don't transfer beneficial interest. They're just transferring the servicing rights. Well, 
they're clearly they know they got a problem and now their their dialogue is certainly changing but this again goes to the heart of the Riley case where she said look this is materially false these are deceptive practices and these are what the courts have been presuming as being valid and we're now understanding that none of what they're saying in these documents when you drill down and ask them under oath they're admitting that no none of this happened it's not how it occurred and it's not what was intended and it's just i don't know why it says what it says and they're admitting that this stuff is false so how that plays into challenging not only the assignments but to come in when this question is posed by the courts well how have you been harmed well neil gives a, a really great response with a lot of reasonings why and you started touching upon this uh, to begin with um but I, I think what's really important in that Riley case is you look at the court's analysis of the un, uh, unclean hands, and when they come out and state in this case that it doesn't matter if the plaintiff's claims are meritorious, if they have a valid claim or not, it doesn't matter. If they are going to violate the law and come into court and, and, and feel like that, the end justifies the means. If they're going to trump up these documents, I don't care how meritorious your claim is, you're never going to get relief in this courtroom, okay? And so what I want and, and the, the listeners to understand and people fighting these documents is not only do we now have so much supporting information in the public domain, we have the AG settlements, we have all of this billions of dollars of consent judgments, we have them even admitting after the consent judgments after they've already been told that this was in, uh, that they have to stop this behavior knowingly and willingly using these deceptive tactics and executing these documents in these cases and recording them in the public records and they're admitting that they're false okay now this needs to be used against them in with with not only the unclean hands doctrine but with all of the different consumer statutes that are available that have a lot of teeth that basically uh, you know make it crystal clear that if you're not you know FDCPA for example if you're not the owner of the debt you know you can't be coming after somebody you know trumping up documents claiming that you are in per for purposes of collecting it's common sense so that's what this what I really want to get across to the listeners here is that look these assignments being admittedly bunk need to be challenged under these under these conditions and i think that um uh we've been saying this for a long time you know uh you know giving them avenues under the consumer statutes but again as the admissions keep on coming out and as we get more of this hard evidence um this blows all their presumptions out of the water but i'll let you talk here a little bit about those uh consumer statutes or uh charles yeah absolutely bill and that's some really good analysis on the the kind of consumer law front that goes back to you know some of these consumer statutes go back to the 70s others to the 80s but in terms of the FDCPA you know the Federal Debt Collection Practices Act that's potentially a, a major resource we can use I mean, I will give the caveat that, you know, of the 13 federal districts around the country, because, of course, these causes of action can always be brought in state court, particularly in connection with traditional 
property-related causes of action for the state you're in. Nevertheless, sometimes federal court can be a better vetting venue for these types of actions. Uh, you need to consult with an attorney, as you will need to do, even if you're pro per or pro se, to vet your case and really get some kind of a read on, on the merits of what you specifically are bringing in your jurisdiction. Uh, that being said, the FDPCA can be not just a legitimate tool. It, it can be a strong tool in some cases. I will say, though, there are major caveats to that. There are still a lot of, of the 13 federal judicial districts that do not treat a typical mortgage debt as a consumer loan. So in those districts and those venues, subject to those rulings, you won't even get a finding that your case is subject to the FDCPA. Because if, if your mortgage loan is not treated as a consumer loan, then you don't fall under the FDCPA. And as I often California Matters on this show, because that's my area of expertise, I will do so now. And California, the, uh, you know, the Ninth Circuit, uh, which adjudicates these matters at the appeal level, there's still a split of authority. There's not a unified decision on this question. So California is not the ideal venue to be litigating these types of matters. It doesn't mean you cannot litigate these matters. It means you can have decisions falling any number of ways in states that don't consider mortgage loans, consumer loans, then you're, you know, you're basically out of luck when it comes to the FDCPA. Uh, when it comes to the overall harm that Bill and I have been talking about and kind of some of the bullet points related to that, the first major one relates to whether you can get a true accounting of the amount of money owed, you know, the alleged debt. There's going to be an accounting issue. There's always an accounting issue. And there's always an issue associated with that of who's the real creditor, who should you be paying. <clears throat> what, are, what are your additional thoughts on that, Bill? Well, yeah, we've talked a little, lot about the verification of the accounting, and they never can produce it. And uh, all you have to do, is, again, is look at that Prudian case, and you look at the testimony that even goes on in there where, you know, prior to the court compelling that information and them admitting they don't have it, the witness said, you know, when asked, look, is it possible that when I send you my payments each month that that money is making it to the investor or it's not making it, that Chase is pocketing it? And you, I mean, Chase's response, and this is an attorney, okay, it has a, a, a a label of legal specialist three. That's his uh, job title. So he's, a, he's you know, supposedly an educated man. His response is, well, I suppose anything can happen. Uh, anything's possible. So he's admitting, well, it's possible that, yeah, maybe your money isn't making it to the end investor. But, you know, when you talk about all the ways in which people get twisted up, you have to remember that when their incentive, they have no incentive, I should say, to modify these loans or to work out anything. They're, they're completely motivated 
to foreclose and to take that house. And that's and the reasons are obvious, especially when they don't have any skin in the game. Uh, they want to harvest that home, and that's exactly what they're going after are those judgments. When there's no incentive, people get tied up uh, for years in, in, in uh, having their credit re- you know, destroyed to the re- credit reporting agencies. They can't even get up off the mat. They keep you down, and they keep you distraught. They keep you stressed, causing health issues, all kinds of uh, you know, problems with you know, marital uh, issues. I mean, the, 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 the emotional trauma the, uh, and the health issues and everything is, is just off the charts on this stuff, so the stress that they create. But also, you know, people have, when they're in limbo like this, they, they don't want to repair their homes that are starting to fall apart over time. They, need, they have leaky roofs, and they want to maybe remodel and do things to, you know, that would probably help stimulate the economy and, and, and help job creation and everything else. But they're stuck because who wants to put any money into fixing the toilets and the showers and the leaks and the problems that pop up if they're just going to turn around and get kicked out and throw them to the street, you know, at the end of the day. I mean, there are so many levels of which the property value when the title gets clouded and everything else that these people are just, they've paid a deep price here, and there's a tremendous amount of harm. But, yes, going back to the accounting, people are left to fight with a ghost. I mean, that's really all this boils down to is, is they're, they're trying to, you know, beat this dead horse every day going in, asking in discovery and seeking this information that clearly the other side should have to, to prove their side. But, you know, and we all know they don't have it, can't produce it. And this is uh, um, a, a situation here where there is no traceable accounting of these debts and and. And so, you know, I always go back to Ivanova. I mean, California. I just, I, I love the the the, the big uh, statement by the the high court there. It said, "Listen, people don't owe a debt to the world at large. They owe it to a particular party." And and what precisely. we still see, what's that? Yeah, precisely. I mean, that that was from the California Supreme Court. It's it's a compelling summation, really, of the situation that borrowers are in. And, you know, you're absolutely right. This whole issue of the lenders so-called, the servicers so-called of the lenders, when they don't have skin in the game, when their incentives are not actually tied to the underlying note, the underlying loan at issue, because their relationship to that may, may either be fake, finesse, or in some other way compromised, so they really don't care who pays back the loan. And something else Neil discusses, which we haven't gotten into detail, but it, it's a significant issue related to all this, is a, a lot of times it looks as if the, the pretender lenders and the servicers associated with them have been repaid several times for the same sturdy uh, instrument, the same so-called you know, note from origin. So that's for a, a topic for another day. But as far as, you know, this issue of, of what happens when there's money owed in this particular situation and is that really going to be properly accounted for, the reality is it often isn't because there's not enough of an incentive and sometimes there's actually a perverse incentive to have a, a final accounting. 
Well, right, and the courts, also, the courts are simply the courts are wash are, are are cutting right through this, and they're just saying, uh, you know, as we said earlier, um, even though they're not producing the accounting, we're just going to give them the presumption that they're owed. And I guess you have to come back and you have to go right into in front of the judge, and you have to say, listen. You know, if the law says that these people have unclean hands, and I can prove they have unclean hands by the behaviors and the deceptive documents and everything they've put forth under these rules and these laws, then why should I lose my house to this party? Why should I lose my house to them sitting over there when they've come, when well, they've exactly, come into court because, and done this? Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just real quickly because we're running out of time. Why should anybody believe, either a third party or the quote-unquote borrower, him or herself, why should you believe the accounting when the other side has no incentive to provide proper accounting? And, you know, just to wrap up the, the points that Neil talked about and which are very transient related to these issues, you know, you can't alienate the property. You can't sell it or rent it when the chain of title is completely muddied like this. So that's a very real harm in a lot of these situations. And then you're subject to the continual foreclosure proceedings. So, Bill, as always, I thank you very much for joining me today to talk about this important topic. He will be back next week. And uh, I wish everyone a good day in the meantime. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.